communication and I'm into writing. <laughs> and I just, I wish that wasn't the slogan. I wish there was a definition of what love is um, in, in the current culture. And I'm going to go back to a part of my story where I, the reason I really don't like that slogan is because I was, this was before I became a Christian. In fact, it was about nine months before um, I was 18, so I could go to all the clubs in Sydney and was really enjoying myself. A really cool one called Oxford Art Factory, and um, where I was a post-punk dancer. And um, <laughs> you can imagine, it's like the long fringe and the, the tight Melbourne Subi jeans. And uh, yeah, I had my, my friends from uni that I'd go dancing with at this club, and there was kind of the intelligentsia, and the political leaders of the far left there and were all together. And there was often kind of like quite pretentious intellectual posing in this space. Um, and so my version of that is I had a journal and I wrote in a Charlie Chaplin pen the question, what is love, one night. And I handed this to the whole club, just secretly hoping I might get a decent answer because I was crying out for that. I wanted someone, and I was gonna try and track down who it was and then befriend them or maybe date them, <laughs> if it was decent. Um, and so I, I got this, you know, this question back with about 200 answers and so many of them is, what is love, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. And just, weird, austere citations from various philosophers that made no sense, and just really underwhelming responses from like the political and creative leadership of my generation. Everyone was going around talking about love, but no one knew what love was. And that frustrated me. So I was in the cab on my way home, and I, that secular ideal of love cracked for me. And I was like, right, I'm gonna be celibate for a year. <laughs> I'm gonna just give up that whole sexual side of myself because it's just too hard. And actually, I'd still go home with guys, but we just didn't sleep together. <laughs> and because I just, I was sick of like engaging in that being love because I knew that wasn't necessarily love. So I was almost like grasping at Christian truth, but I just couldn't find it in that moment. And so I think we need to move beyond that superficiality in the secular world. Um, and there are secular people who are trying to move deeper as well, and I actually think they can become our friends. We might not agree with them, not have the ethical, same ethical stance, but they're like, yeah, that's really superficial and I don't agree with that, but you know, I disagree with you. And so I think in this session I wanna talk about two key words, one is solidarity, and I mentioned that in my previous talk, and fellowship. What is the difference between solidarity and fellowship? If you can tell me, I'll give you $100, no. Like, it's really, I think this is the crisis point we're in as a culture, is how do we have friends who radically disagree with us ethically, but still find points of solidarity in our common humanity? As the church, we need to get better at this. There are gonna be people in the woke, hyper-liberal, whatever you wanna call it, world, who are just as human as you and groping around trying to answer those deep fundamental questions and doing that in an honest way. 
And they're people you can have solidarity with in the mystery. But the scriptures have another radical opposite within it, and you'll see it everywhere. I call it Halkakic Temple Cultus Holiness. Oof, that's a lot. It's fancy academic terminology. Basically, the Jews had to protect the temple from the unclean, impure, immoral things of the world, or they were breaking covenant with Yahweh. And they lived with constant anxiety. And you can see this all the way through your Old Testament, even to the point where David gets the sacrifice wrong, but still God embraces it because David had a heart after him. So you can see that apocalyptic, like, what true holiness looks like isn't necessarily all the sacrifices and all the temple maintenance that needed to happen. And yet it was, because when that maintenance was wrong, people died in the presence of God. So we're talking like, that's a huge anxiety to live with as the Jews. That's your responsibility to worship God in holiness and in truth. And if you don't do that, there'll be repercussions. So you have this God who comes and radically identifies and has solidarity with sinners who are his enemies, and yet a God who's also the God of the temple who requires radical holiness. And, you know, it says in Jude, don't even touch the clothes of the sexually immoral. What do you do with that? I was sitting with Tom Wright, who's my friend, and, you know, kind of like my grandfather in the faith a bit, and he was my professor at St. Andrews University, and he said, you look like a man who prays. <laughs> and our friendship wasn't really theological to begin with. I, he just knew I was a massive charismatic, and I'd actually pray when he asked, um, so, <laughs> which isn't always true, but <laughs> more than often it is. And uh, so I'd pray for him and various things that he was going through, and one day we were talking over a meal, and he goes, you know, David, one of the hardest parts of the New Testament is this tension between holiness and unity. I was like, exactly. And the sexuality issue is right at the heart of that. And again, this is another tension we're not meant to try to resolve, but we're meant to live within. And this is an issue that comes up with the gay community because according to the Old Testament law, that is against God's holy standard. So that triggers in Christians the holiness response, the holiness anxiety of we have to protect the church from impurity and unholiness. And in some ways, that's understandable. The problem is that isn't a complete picture. Because what does holiness actually look like? What was God wanting in the law? The law was crying out for Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and Jesus touches the clothes of the sexually immoral. Jesus goes towards the sinner and Jesus yet still fulfills that holiness because he perfectly loves God and neighbor. And that holiness is a more powerful holiness than the kind of halkakic, you know, maintenance of the covenant in the Old Testament. So this is kind of Bible stuff. So you get in all of these stories, Jesus is upholding the standard of the law, 
but subverting the use of the law to condemn people who don't fit within it. And I think that's incredible. And so let's fast forward to Romans 1. Paul is so much like Jesus. So much like Jesus. You know, Paul has the mind of Christ. Maybe not in the third letter to the Corinthians, but the rest of it. (laughs) He does have the mind of Christ. And there, so I just want to take you into Bible land for a second because it's so fascinating. There is a culture that is tearing itself apart over the issue of solidarity with Gentiles that have been justified by faith, had the Holy Spirit poured into them, you know, know Jesus as Messiah, but aren't obeying the law. And then Jews who have accepted that Jesus is the Mashiach, but have not gotten on board with the idea of Paul, which is that they don't have to be circumcised. And Paul rocks up in the Jewish church and is like, I am the apostle of the Gentiles, fire. And all the Jews are like, I'm not sure about him. (laughs) He's crazy. (laughs) And Peter's even like, yeah, I'm just going to make sure I don't eat with the Gentiles now because they're kind of dirty still. And Paul rebukes him and says, do you not know who we've received? the greater righteousness, the greater holiness that doesn't come through obedience to the law? Does that mean the law is not good and not spiritual? No, but it's just less than that. And Paul sees that in a way that actually Peter struggled to and a lot of the Jews of the time struggled to to see. And in AD 45, five years before um, Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, Emperor Claudius kicks out all the Jews from Rome. He's like, I've had it. Your discussion about Crestus and who's in and who's out, well, you're all out. Get out of my city, get out of, I don't wanna see you. You are so annoying. Because they were all in the streets yelling and arguing, is Gentiles included or not? And is he the Messiah? No, he's not, yes, he is. And everyone's got a different opinion and everyone's, sounds a lot like homosexuality and gender identity today, doesn't it? It's the same essential struggle. But we see the Apostle Paul in Christ representing a way through the dilemma. And so the Jews come back to Rome and he writes this letter to a very fragmented community that's just come back together, the church at Rome that's been debating these questions. So you would have had, you know, different camps. And what he does in Romans 1 is write an incredibly Jewish beginning to kind of get the Jews on side. Yeah, 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 he's the Messiah, he's the Mashiach, he's by the power of David and all the things of the Old Testament. And then he keeps writing and he's like, great, let's write a really stereotypical Jewish critique of, non, uh, of non-Jews. Yeah, they've got temple worship. Yeah, they've got homosexuality going on. Yeah, they've got all the vices and we're the people of God and we don't have those and we need to stay faithful to the covenant. And Paul doesn't disagree with the critique, but what he does in Romans 2 is he turns that critique back 
onto the Jews. And they dismally fall short of their own standard. And he says, you do these things more. In other words, there were tons of gay Jewish people (laughs) and tons of people who attempted to idol worship and tons of people that were doing all the wrong things according to the law. And that's what the whole Old Testament keeps telling us. (laughs) But the Jews couldn't see beyond this obsession with their holiness and trying to be faithful to the covenant. And I think Paul is like Jesus in this moment, like the woman caught in adultery, like the Samaritan woman, like all of these people outside the kosher bounds of Israel. Jesus goes to them with this greater righteousness, with this greater holiness, and says the law has been fulfilled. That's what Paul is trying to do in Romans 1. He's trying to say you need a greater righteousness. Romans 3, Jesus is the greater righteousness. If you try to work out your sexual identity, your gender identity, without that greater righteousness, you are just going to add more fire to a cult of death. That's pretty intense. So law kills, but the spirit gives life. We have to get that, yes, the law is spiritual and holy, but it cannot justify and it cannot provide that greater righteousness. This is not a playground theological concept. This is right at the heart of the whole point of Jesus coming, is that we couldn't get it right. And so that creates a space where mystery can be engaged where the subjective wrestle of every story can be met with a far greater righteousness that lives in the deeper tension between our call to be holy and set apart for Jesus and the radical unity we share in him even when we get things wrong. And I think that tension's beautiful and it means that we can actually deal with things like sexuality and gender in a way that the Jews just really struggled to. And praise God for the Jews, because that would have been a really hard job. I still have questions, like, did they really stone gay people in the Old Testament? I really hope not, and it seems not. It seems it was actually more like, the penalty is death, don't do it, than actually they did that to people. Because you don't choose to be gay, you know? You can choose to act, but... It's a lot. It doesn't really engage the issue of mystery. But Jesus coming and becoming Job and meeting that mystery does. So that's, I wanted to share like why, I've already talked about that. Why I, you know, think that the actually New Testament is the beginning of gay rights. Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion where you know, he, he's, he was an atheist or secular agnostic who realized that he was morally Christian because he looked at the pagan world and saw how morally inferior it was, like the way they treated women, eunuchs, people who were, you know, outcasts socially. Um, and that the inclusion of all these groups, including Paul's defense of those who engaged in kind of same-sex activity in Romans 1, and then 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 
says don't do those things, that's not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven if you make your life that action. <laughs> but such as some of you were, and now you're washed, and now you're justified. In other words, the early church was full of gay people who'd received the greater righteousness the way in that they couldn't find before. That's exciting. Like, it's our gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus that's even made gay rights and LGBTQI plus rights possible. (laughs) If we were still with the Greco-Roman model or the Jewish model, that would never have happened. If Jesus didn't come, people would be left in death. All of us who aren't Jews in this room would be dead. Do we really understand how precious this gospel is for that community and beyond? For all of us, do we understand the saving, justifying work of Jesus? It's so amazing. I just love it. And that's why I'll never not be a Christian, because there's nothing greater than that. Good luck in any other religion. <laughs> One of my favorite people is St. Augustine. Why? Because, well, he believed that sexuality was an originary good. I talked about that in my last talk. In other words, every other church father, by I think it was Ambroastia, I can't really say his name properly, um, believed that sex was a result of the fall. But Augustine thought we were created sexually in the beginning, before the fall, which is much more in alignment with the Jewish view. And the Bible. And so if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't even have a culture where we care about what our sexual orientation is. Because we wouldn't care about sexuality because it wasn't part of the original good. We'd all want to just be celibate, which is what a lot of early Christians just wanted to be monastics and set up heaven on earth and forget about marriage. And there were many people like Jerome who were like, yeah, marriage is all right, but celibacy, holy virginity, that's the one. And Augustine another guy called Jovinian who started arguing that actually there's no difference between virginity or celibacy and marriage. Actually, we're all baptized and so it's equal. And didn't give any extra to people who had to go through the trial of trying to be celibate in that culture. And both of those extremes are wrong and Augustine came as the center to said, well, it's true there's a greater reward for holy virginity because it's harder. Because you don't get to participate in the created good. But who cares about that if you're not humble? Because if you're not humble about your celibacy, well, you've lost the virtue of it anyway. And he humbled the whole situation. I just like, what a dude. So cool. And like, I found he like also challenged me as a gay celibate Christian because I'm, I'm celibate and I've given up my life and what have all these heterosexuals done but gotten married, you know? And like, I had this like bitterness. Augustine challenged that in me and he said, no, be humble. You're no better except for the grace of God. And by the way, that celibacy only comes through the grace of God, not because you did it. And so Augustine spends all of his time writing letters to holy virgins that think they're the bee's knees. Because to Augustine, we are constantly threatened by the de nilio experience they nearly um, kind of threat of sin and our finitude. In other words, we were created out of nothing and we live except for God from nothing. We are always drawn back into the nihil, the nothingness. 
from which we were created except by the grace of God. So any virtue we have, any goodness we display morally must come from God. It cannot be something we credit to ourselves as semi-Pelagians. People who think, yeah, well, it's kind of me too, and I get the credit. It's like, you do. Yes, it is you doing it, but you don't, you don't attribute it foremost to yourself. It's the grace of God. And I think that's really important in any of the solutions or asceticisms that we're recommending to people who are LGBTQI plus or not, that that doesn't come out of like a moral, stoical culture forcing someone to be celibate or forcing someone to get married, but out of the grace and love of God as self-gift. Because otherwise, it's just coming from the day Nilho, the ex Nilho existence. And it's not interesting to God. It doesn't work. It's, it's bad celibacy. So we also have, you know, this concept in scripture that Oliver O'Donovan, who is a Regis professor of moral and pastoral theology, he says, together with man's essential involvement in created order and his rebellious discontent with it, we must reckon also upon the opacity and obscurity of that order to the human mind which has rejected the knowledge of its creator. That's a lot, but it's a beautiful way of saying Romans 1, basically. <laughs> that we, we can't live into created structures, as I discussed previously. He says, abstraction from teleology creates a dangerous misunderstanding of the place of man in the universe, for it supposes that the observing mind encounters an inert creation, not that it is a creation without movement, but a creation with a point to its movement. O'Donovan's really hard to understand, but I put it there as a challenge. <laughs> What I think he's trying to say is, creation isn't finished yet. It's moving towards a point. Marriage is not the end point. Marriage is the sign that points to a signified, which is this final new creation. And so if we interpret marriage in and of itself, it becomes, a bad, it becomes something that actually gets in the way of the kingdom of God, because it becomes what we seek after. And we want this static, Creation, and that's what happened in 1950s Christianity, is that the church used marriage to patch over its trauma and family values and white picket fences and women with hoovers and in the kitchen and all this craziness to try to create this utopic, static, created order that wasn't moving towards a point in the future that it was understood through, and that created oppressive gender norms and also really, really horrible ideas about gay people and transgender people. So we have to understand that God in the resurrection through Christ vindicates, restores, and then transforms created order into something even greater. And that celibacy is a sign of that reality and marriage is a sign of that reality. And without each other, those two vocations of sexual, our sexual humanity will suffer. They need each other. The celibate needs to access the goods of the created order in marriage indirectly through friendship with couples. And couples need celibate people to remind them, hey, you raising your kids and all the difficulties and all the wonders of that and being a family or not having kids and being just you're a married couple, like that, that actually by itself, you have to be careful not to get too focused on just that. 
there's a future coming that's going to get transformed into an even greater reality. And it's, it's not a point in and of itself. It's moving towards a greater future. I actually think, I know that sounds really abstract, but I think that is so important for how we live out marriage. And also celibacy is honored as a sign of that to married people to help them rightly use the created good. So celibates stretch forward to the teleology, to the end point. But married keep us anchored in the created good that is still present and still vindicated by Jesus' resurrection. So we live in the tension, the faithful tension of marriage and celibacy. And homosexuality and gender identity need to be understood within those two witnesses to the coming transformation. Our bodies, begotten or made. The sex into which we have been born, assuming that it is physiologically unambiguous, so intersex people are more ambiguous, but even within intersex, there's a very, very small minority where it really is 100% ambiguous. You can't really tell if they're male or female, but for most intersex people, it's quite insulting to say, well, you're ambiguous. Like, well, no, I'm, I'm a bit more ambiguous, but I'm still male and female. Like, and a lot of transgender, like hyper-transgender activists have spoken over intersex people and said, oh, yeah, you justify why there's no such thing as physical sex. Ridiculous. That is not a good representation of intersex people, to let intersex people speak for themselves rather than project our narratives onto them. So assuming that it's physiologically unambiguous, it's given to us to be welcomed as a gift of God. So me being made male is not something to oppress me, it's actually a gift. The task of physiological maturity, sorry, psychological maturity, for it is a moral task and not merely an event which may or may not transpire, involves accepting this gift and learning to love it, even though we may have to acknowledge that it does not come to us without problems. No one can say with any confidence what factors have made these pressures so severe. In other words, for some people, this is really hard stuff to accept your body as male or female as a gift. And we have to understand that. For many people, they live with an incongruence between those two things, and it's really hard. And I like that O'Donovan affirms that our bodies, you know, are a gift, but realizes that's also pastorally really difficult for some people. Nevertheless, we cannot and must not conceive a physical sexuality as a mere raw material with which we can construct a form of psychosexual self-expression which is determined only by the free impulse of our spirits. Responsibility in sexual development implies a responsibility to nature, to the ordered good of the bodily form which we have been given. I just think that's really wonderfully expressed that actually we do have to be faithful to the body we've been given as Christians. And that's different to the secular culture because we worship a bodily raised Messiah. The body has been vindicated as good. Sexual difference has been vindicated as good. So we can't just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You can just delete sexual difference. That's not going to work if you're really a Christian. I'm sorry, it won't. <laughs> and I think O'Donovan's right about that. But it's been problematized. It's another wonderful friend of mine, John Tyson, you might know him. 
He says, we have a crisis in the systems of the world. They are trying to exist without the presence of God. Capitalism and progressivism, their view of sexuality is converging. When the right politically goes into absolute toxicity, <coughs> Trump, um, it morphs into <laughs> mutant capitalism, which then becomes digital capitalism. Everything that is solid is being made liquid. The middle class starts to fold. Racial groups that have had solidity and sense of community are torn apart. You become this consumer with no identity who needs an identity to be sold to you. The left has gone from class consciousness to a complete bombing of authority which allows identity to be sold to you. There were structures which have folded and consumeristic liquidity has filled its place. And young people are dealing with this today and it's so hard. You have to make your identity constantly and anxiously be trying to work that out. And that's a lot for someone who doesn't have the skills of an adult. <laughs> and so product can be so easily sold under the rainbow banner, you know, which to me doesn't represent the rainbow <laughs> at all as a gay man. But anyway. Then you have queer and gender theory from Judith Butler. I think we need to be really careful with this. There is in some sense a gift that we've been given in queer theory. It's a radical diagnosis of the bodily fall. Paul says that our bodies have been subjected to frustration and decay in Romans. So that's already queer theory saying, only they don't have a resurrection, they don't have God. They're just saying, you can't get back to sex. The representation of pure representation of our sexual difference is gone. You can't get to Genesis anymore. Bye-bye. You are what you are within you and you're never gonna be able to get back to the representation of your body as male and female, truly. It's over. Language won't allow it. And in some sense, as evangelicals, we agree. <laughs> there is a radical fall, and there is a radical problem with how gender is represented. And I think that's a gift. I mean, we have a resurrection. We have a way in which that has been regained for us in Christ, in marriage and in our communal life together with male and female, being represented through the lens of Jesus that I don't think is oppressive if it's really done well and in the way that Paul says there's male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean you erase those differences, but in some sense they're relativized by this greater future reality of resurrection. And so, you know, Gerard Lachlan, who's a queer theologian, he says, queer means the end of sexual difference itself. We can't agree with that. It doesn't mean the end of sexual difference itself. It means that sexual difference is fallen and we need a new hermeneutic, a new lens through which to see it, which Paul gives us in the epistles. It's to reflect the unity of God and humanity. And so sexual difference still does matter because Jesus raised as a sexually differentiated person and it still matters for what the gospel means. So I don't agree with Jared Lochlin, but I think it's worth not just reacting to queer theory or queer theology, but actually seeing some of the gift of it as a critique that we can listen to, maybe not always agree with. This is a um, gay Catholic writer, Andrew Sullivan. I suppose in some ways I'm kind of like him, but I'm not Catholic, so maybe a little less into the natural law theory. But he says, the truth is that many lesbians and gay men are quite attached to the concept of sex as a natural biological material thing. 
We are men and attracted to other men. If the concept of a man is deconstructed, then homosexuality itself is deconstructed. Transgender people pose no threat to us, but transgenderous ideology of a particular kind, including postmodern conceptions of sex and gender, is indeed a threat to homosexuality because it's a threat to biological sex as a concept. And so it is not transphobic for a gay man not to be attracted to a trans man. It is close to definitional. Whew. So you're seeing that actually within these different groups, there's huge disagreement about the status of sexual difference. And I think as a Christian, I sit somewhere between um, Andrew Sullivan and maybe Judith Butler and Augustine. <laughs> but I'm still working it all out. I mean, honestly, I don't know how to deal with this conflict fully yet. I'm trying to be humbly like, I don't know, and I'm working it out. <laughs> Um, so, what are the three main anthropological realities Scripture presents to anchor our identities? A, the created order, the good of a sex body, which we've just discussed. B, the effects of the fall, the sacramental body, and I'm talking about that a lot, like being stuck in the tension between created order and transformation of created order, that we, don't, we taste the Holy Spirit, we live with the power of the Holy Spirit and a new resurrection body, and yet we're still groaning in this body in Romans 8. We're still struggling. We're not zapped into perfection. <laughs> um, and we need to learn to have a pastoral theology of the sacramental body. And for me, sac I define sacramental as being between heaven and earth. So something sacramental or a sacrament is simply a place where heaven and earth meet. So Jesus is, as Karl Barth says, the sacramentum fide, but I don't agree with Karl Barth that that means there are no sacraments. I think in creation there are physical forms that are created um, and then infused with the Spirit to help us live in that tension. So one of them is Eucharist. Um, you know, I think praise in a sense, praise and worship is, is sacramental and helps our sacramental bodies deal with the, the, the groaning and like we know that in our tradition. Um, marriage is a sacrament, celibacy is a sacrament. I just, you know, think so many things are sacrament. A meal together in faith is a sacrament. You know, in some sense, if it has that faith present, connects creation to the eschatological future for which it is um, destined. And then we have redemption. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about diverse glories and different bodies. Some sense, like me living out my life faithfully as a gay man in celibacy is going to have a kind of glory associated with it in my resurrected body. Um, some people have called this queer treasure. I think that's just too hard for the everyday Christian to understand. Um, and I think I personally believe queerness will eventually pass away um, and into holiness. So I think queerness isn't a human category for now in the sacramental tension, but it's not an ultimate category. So I think we need to understand identity as with impermanent elements and permanent elements. So for me, being gay or queer or same-sex attracted is a impermanent part, um, but will be reflected in the permanent part, which is in Christ. Um, and so I, we need to interpret being gay straight, all of these things, in, in these three kind of anthropological realities of Scripture. 
Paul says, not all flesh is the same. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Interesting. That's death, right? It is sown in dishonor and is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, Paul doesn't mean spiritual as in non-physical. He means a body that's fully able to be with the Holy Spirit and not have any more fleshly temptation, be energized by the Holy Spirit without conflict. Our bodies right now, we know they're sown in dishonor. They are in conflict sometimes because of the flesh with the spirit and we try to live a life where we're ruled in the body by the Holy Spirit and the body is a good thing in that case but the body can also wrestle with the spirit because of the flesh as Paul talks about and I think in some sense we all wrestle with that but differently and have a diverse glory because of that and I think there is a diverse glory for people with different wrestles disability, you know is one and has its own kind of glory. I think being LGBTQI plus will have some kind of glory. You know, there's so many different situations, so subjective and individual um, in some sense that everyone will have a kind of cool glory in heaven. <laughs> and it will be all a mix of all the things we've dealt with as we, we've sown our body in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. And one of the things I try to teach the church is actually um, when someone says I'm... LGBTQI+, to have the cruciform lens to see the glory. So when the blind man is presented to Jesus and everyone's saying it's because of his parents' sin, it's because he's a sinner, it's be- and they're trying the Job's friends' theories. <laughs> it's because they have a bad relationship with their father, it's because some for- pseudo-Freudian thing, it's because they're just a bit worse than us. <laughs> you know? um, and Jesus says, no, it's for the glory of God to be revealed. And I just think we need to start looking at LGBTQI plus community with excitement of like, what glory is going to be revealed? Or look at the struggle you have with some kind of addiction or what glory is going to be revealed or whatever thing you think is bad news, actually when grace touches it, becomes the greatest kinds of glory that you will have in heaven. Um, So I don't know, that's how I try to think about my sexuality rather than just this really hard thing all the time that I don't really understand why God allowed that. And there's days where I have that, but there's days where I'm like, oh my gosh, the glory, <laughs> you know, that is gonna be revealed in me. Thanks, Jesus's. Um... So I talked about Jesus's resurrection, but then I talked about created order and apocalyptic inclusion. I've talked about Romans one and two to you, Acts eight, the Ethiopian eunuch, Emperor Claudius, what a dude. Hope he received Jesus in the end, but you know, Maybe not. Um, So just to conclude, I've talked about all these tensions that I'm trying to kind of recommend to you as things that you don't solve, but that you faithfully live within. So that's a deeper idea than just like a formula that you slap onto these issues. But these are the three frameworks I suppose I've come up with when I go into the media. So I've been on BBC One Television defending gay marriage in the church, not an easy thing. Um, and you know, whenever I do 
some kind of big engagement, I'm always like the three, the three cultural, the, the, the three frameworks. I need, to li- I need my response to have all three frameworks held in tension. Because in the media, you're going to constantly get these, but dissected from each other. You know, what, what the media really wants someone to say is, it's a sin. That's the disorder framework. Um, the media really wants to say, well, didn't create, he didn't create Adam and Steve, he created Adam and Eve. You know, that's the design framework. And they're waiting for you to have these kinds of jingles when you respond like, yeah, exactly, they're just you know, excluding people. Or the progressive one, it's all part of the diversity of God. We just love queer people, and it's just diversity, you know. Um, it's separated from disorder and design. So what we need to do as the church is actually frustrate those isolated frameworks and join all three back together again. We need to have the design framework, God did create a good world, the disorder framework, there is a fall, and the diversity framework, there are diverse glories as we carry these different identities and these different wrestles faithfully in Christ and hold all three together and never compromise. And if we are persecuted because we hold to all three, then that's because we are being persecuted for Christ's sake. But if we just say it's a sin, I mean, that's not going to do anything. If we just say Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, like... No, like if you don't join those two things together and then add in the diversity framework, then you've lost. Because <laughs> that's not actually the gospel. You've just preached a tiny bit of the gospel. It's not the whole story. So we really have to have this integrated approach to avoid falling into the cultural scripts that the world is waiting for us to reaffirm so it can condemn us and actually come up with the greater global gospel picture and be creative in how we do that and wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So these are just three things I have in my mind. Disorder, have I talked about sin and Jesus died and we need forgiveness and we're not perfect and our bodies are subject to decay and frustration? Have I talked about the fact we were created fabulous in the beginning and that does also involve gay people, praise God, (laughs) not just straight people? You know, have I talked about that diversity framework, that all people included part of the diversity of the church and that, that God's radical embrace goes all the way to the margins. In fact, it often comes from the margins inwards, um, as we see with Jesus. So we need to live in the, have a holistic response in our pastoral theology, in how we witness in culture. Um, so much more to say here, but I want to get to your questions. And I've talked about Isaiah 56. I'm going to end and open to your questions on this incredible citation quote from a transgender friend of mine who's asked actually not to be listed. Um, But I thought this was one of the most incredible citations about the mystery of suffering, which I think I've talked about, you know, the mystery of suffering, mystery of sexuality, a deeply linked mystery of gender, mystery of the body. And she says, suffering in Christianity is not only meaningless, It is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior because this is the means by which the ugly, meaningless, atheistic suffering of the world, the problem of evil, was transmuted into living water, the blood of Christ, 
the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so, sorry, that God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane. Christ prays, not my will, but thine be done. And when God's will is done, it involves the scourge and the nails. It's also struck me as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to a state of perfection as the body of Adam in Eden, but rather it still bears the mark of his suffering and death. And indeed, that is precisely through these marks that he is known by Thomas. Oh my gosh, like I read that now and I just think what an amazing God we worship. That it's not, it's through our weaknesses, it's through our sexuality and gender wrestle, it's through a marriage that's not working properly, it's through our un- unhappy celibacy, whatever, that the world can know us and not just know us, but know Christ in us. It's not in spite of these things, but precisely through them. And they are actually therefore gifts for gl- the glory of God to, to, to break into the world and actually all the glory of God in heaven that is pouring out in all of our worship sessions is coming through hands that are wounded and now scarred. And so how much more should these areas of wrestle not be the places that we precisely expect God to break out in his glory? Thank you. Thank you, David. So... I'm conscious of maybe all sorts of questions that people have got. Um, I'm also conscious that we don't have hours and hours of time because there's another seminar coming in here. We've got probably about 10 minutes or so. Oh, Um, sorry. No, that's okay. I think I lost track. What I'm not going to do is just send the mic out randomly because I want to make sure that questions are helpful and relevant to everybody, if that makes sense. So I have got a couple straight away that I'm going to ask you that have come through from leaders in the room to me down here, and there may be others... Um, and feel free to you know, come and whisper in my ear, but I'm also going to be trying to listen to David. The first one, um, and I'm hoping these will be relevant to, to everybody, because we as, uh, you, know, you stand here amongst a group of churches um, who uh, we, like you, we wouldn't be, um, you know, we don't do same-sex weddings. Yeah. Um, we you know, would hold uh, sex as between a man and a woman in a married relationship. And we've, so we've got those kind of situations. Mm-hmm. And as you put on your slide earlier, that you know, uh, celibacy, the natural state of every Christian, right? Yes. <laughs> However they feel. Um, so we've got all of that in place. The reality is that we live in this challenging world with all sorts of questions around us. And straight away, as soon as you're starting to talk, you're saying, referring to yourself as a gay man, a gay Christian, a gay celibate Christian. Mm-hmm. And then we sometimes hear another language, which is, I'm same-sex attracted. Yeah. And are you able to speak to that kind of tension? between what, So you're happy to say, I'm gay and I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And some people have, well, have got, oh, I've not heard that before. I can tell immediately, people mm-hmm. want, some people won't have heard that before. Mm-hmm. And then there's others I'm aware of within my church, you know, amongst our uh, leaders around the movement yeah. who would say, no, I'm same-sex attracted. Mm-hmm. How do you... T- 
talk to me about that tension, that, that barrier between those two. Yeah, it's um, a great question. I think um, you know, people find themselves in different situations that require slightly different language. I think for me, I'm an academic, I'm a theologian, I'm called in some way to be in the Church of England um, and relating to this you know, post-secular culture. So for me, same-sex attracted is a no-no. Um, sounds like a, a kind of medical idea, and I think that's really problematic. Um, so I'm not happy to really use that as a general term for myself, but for other people who you know, might struggle with not making their sexuality their ultimate identity, or who don't want that to be so visible, might just use same-sex attracted or a person with same-sex attraction. I still think, personally, it's important that we have a theology of identity that is nuanced, where we can have, like, say, impermanent parts of our identities that we boast of Christ in. Um, so being gay or, you know, and then other categories that are more permanent. Um, and that that's okay, and that's not contradictory. That's, in fact, very deeply Christian and, like, not dualistic. So for me, calling myself gay is actually really important, and saying I'm queer provides a bridge to people in the world who might not agree with my ethics but um, can see Christ in that space. And if I don't have the language, I can't really build the bridge. Um, yeah. So I want to create a public political and social identity for a future generation of Christians that are gonna live in a different direction. And I just don't think same-sex attractive can do that, but I respect people's conscience. I think it's a bit like food sacrifice to idols. I think I'm free to identify as gay. I don't think that's a sin, but for some people that's a weakness. And so in certain contexts, I might use same-sex attraction just to be sensitive to them, but I don't think it's a problem with eating food sacrifice to idols. Gotcha, yeah. okay. That's. A very rough gloss, but... Yeah, excellent. That's great. So I wanted to start with... Right, second one. Um, we want to try and connect with all sorts of people. Yeah. So if you're visiting a church, and I know you visit all sorts of different churches, um, what are you looking for? What would you look for as an indication? Or what might we want to have in place to make sure our church is a safe place, an inviting place, that someone coming from sort of LGBTQ background, community... Um, would therefore feel able to feel like, oh, I could, I could access this, I can listen, and therefore mm. find a way that they may actually hear the gospel yeah. instead of either never getting through the door or else coming in and running 100 miles away. What, what we, can we do? What, can we, what do you look for? What can we do? I think like, what I've been trying to provide in the talk is some like, just very broad brush strokes of some of the changes that we need to have to conceptually and practically to make the church a place that would be ready for that. Um, things like solidarity, fellowship, these like, you know, in fellowship, you, it's about holiness and there's a kind of leadership structure and you can't have people that are gonna disagree. It doesn't work because that's fellowship. But with everybody that comes in, there's a solidarity. We're all human, we're in this mystery together. The Bible gives us some information, but not everything. Let's wrestle together, but this is what we agree on. And just living in that tension faithfully um, will make the church a safe place. I'm so glad that I went to a church that didn't compromise its sexual ethics and actually challenged me as well to try to find the deeper way. Um, so I think that was really important, as well as 
I wish the church had a way deeper understanding of this and had done studies in queer theory and knew, had a tradition that I could fit into that was already done. But instead I had to do all that work myself and that was pretty exhausting. So I think we got a lot of work to do on that level. But yeah, okay. it's, it's about, these are like already talked about all the things that think need to change, how we understand celibacy in marriage, how we understand like what is essential to our humanity and our flourishing, what's not, you know. Um, I've heard you talk before about people making marriage kind of an idol. Yeah, and I want to be careful with that because I really want to encourage healthy marriages and I really want to be for marriage. I don't want people to think I'm down on marriage. And also, I think there can be a bitterness in single people about marriage. We need to kind of deal with that with the Lord, but then there's this kind of obnoxiousness in straight Christians, particularly that are married, who are kind of privileged and rich and middle class and generally not from an ethnic background that's different, white, you know, and you can feel very slimed around that kind of idolatry, um, and I think that has to change. That's, I'm not saying if you are those things, you're necessarily doing that. Yeah. It's not what you are, but there is a way that that has been done badly, I think, in the church, and that has to change. There's so many things. I mean, it's endless, but I think we're beginning, and that's yeah. exciting. And we're about 40 years late, but, you know, we'll get there with Jesus' grace. Yeah, yeah. So, and it, so yeah, I've got... And thank you, by the way, I'm getting... Sorry, questions. guys, thank I Thank you for so, people sending me this. Is, this I think is really I had good. the fifth quarter past as my... Anyway, sorry about that's, that. That's all right, no, don't worry. No. Um, we, so um, how, how would you help young people? Mm-hmm. They feel they're transgender. I mean, these are, these are questions yeah. based in reality. Parents are members of the church. They haven't found Christ yet. How do you help these young people? What do we do to help these young people so they don't run for the hills you know, and get, be where you were before you met Jesus? Also, how do you help parents as well who, who uh, perhaps feel like if we, yeah. if we give any ground here at all, mm-hmm. then you know, the church isn't... Because often parents at home can be far more militant even than you're trying to be in church. So how do we help parents? How do we help Yeah, I think parents, parents have a really, really hard rub because they don't have the experience, authority of experience to speak from and they're often from a different generation that hasn't been updated with everything that's gone on and so they're often trying to love their child with where they're at and then yet a lot of children are kind of told at school if you do if your parents do this this is homophobic this is transphobic you need to resist them you know and it creates conflict in the home and I think there's a real gracelessness about how everything's being done. And um, I think that will mean it will collapse. Like, I don't think it's going to work. Mm. I think the whole experiment of the hyper-liberal left, you know, progressive, progressivist stuff in school um, is really, really nasty. It's like, get in there around the parents and just, like liberate the kids and then they'll die off and then we'll just have this like hyper-woke, hyper-queer, not holy, not Christian society. And I, I just think that's weird. I don't find that in compelling in terms of like a humanism where we're being human together and we're working this out. So I think parents need to model 
the riches of Christian humanism, of this kind of compassionate embrace of our humanity that has tolerance for mystery and difference um, that can go forward. And that's why I love Anglicanism, because in its best form in this country is a kind of Christian humanism. And I don't mean something that doesn't have God in it, but I mean like the lifting up high view of being human. And um, I think that is what needs to happen. In fact, this kind of tension between parents and their kids and this kind of generational conflict is a yeah, destroying of that humanism where you can have difference of opinion, you can change your view, <laughs> you can grow and be educated and, you know, we're losing that. And I think we need to regain that and I don't know how that's going to happen except yeah. that we all do our little bit to fight for that tradition. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, that was a cool. big... No, that's macrocosm. It's not very like the granular. <laughs> but I mean, have you got any um, sort of great resources you can re recommend as as pastors? If we're trying to help people, yeah. Um, the question specifically is about pastoring trans people. Um, but I, can I, yeah. if, if that's all right, if I can expand the question before beyond yours, how, great resources for well, trans people. What about? One of the things I think I often letters. say to trans people, but because I'm not trans, I'm, always, I'm still learning, and so I'm always trying to work, learn from them. I don't come to them with a posture of, like, I know what you should be. Mm. I come to them with, um, this is my wrestle as a human. <laughs> I'm gay, or this is my wrestle, I'm straight, and these are the things I've got, whatever it is. Um, cisgender, you know, but I still have wrestles. I'm still human like you to build that bridge. And then um, within that, I often try to find some element of Christian truth in their experience I can point them to. So for instance, I'll say, you know, our bodies long for resurrection and long for new creation. And maybe, have you ever thought that maybe your gender dysphoric desire is actually a longing for a new body? And maybe that's actually a good thing in some way because it's telling us as the church, this ain't it. It's like C.S. Lewis says, if you aim for earth, you get nothing. But if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in as well. And I think it's that kind of thing with transgender people trying to show them that their body isn't ultimate, and yet their body is pointing to the need for resurrection. And Any particular books, authors, or anything you'd recommend? Yeah, I think there's a really good sway, like swathes of things right from kind of the Sam Aubrey, you know, reformed camp, Jackie Hill Perry, to like more... Catholic people and um, people like me, somewhere kind of Anglican. Um, it's a lot of resources, but I think if I had to pick one, it'd probably be the Centre for Faith and Sexuality that Preston Sprinkle runs. And then um, uh, Mark Yarhouse at Wheaton College has a Centre for Sexual and Gender Identity, and he's a you know evangelical Christian, but he is a psychologist. So I think Preston's a bit more like the church is working it out and here's everything and this is how I've tried to work it out. PhD in New Testament. And then you mark your house as a professional psychologist yeah. who's wrestling in a different way. So I think they're both great. But what I'm hoping to see is more like actual people with different intersectionalities yeah. in the future doing this. People who from black backgrounds or you know, they're very different cultural landscapes to navigate than the kind of white... Um, Anglo kind of landscape so I think we just got a lot of work to do but there are some good beginning resources mm. but I don't Grace 1.0 and 2.0 is really good Preston, Preston Sprinkle yeah. so yeah 
Now, now clearly you're not um, someone that is, um, you know, you're not going to be recommending that we're endorsing gay marriage and same-sex marriages, <laughs> churches and all that. I, I get all that. And, and I suppose we, we could ask why, why you take that point of view and why you wouldn't be in favour, but in a sense that's sort of what you've already been addressing, people have followed it. But what do we do? Here we are as a church, mm-hmm. okay, and a gay couple who are now legally married come along, maybe they've got kids, they want to find out about Jesus, they do find out about Jesus. What do we do then? We, am I telling yeah. them to split up? Am I, am I embracing? What do I do with that? This, how, is how when, this is when church gets spicy, you know. <laughs> um, like, maybe, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes there are situations like the Bible actually doesn't fully give us everything here. Mm, Holy Spirit help. Like maybe we need to move in the wisdom of the person of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that can look different in different situations. So I have gay friends who are still in, like, a marriage together, um, but it's non-sexual. And, and, and they've come to faith in Jesus. And they've it? come to yeah. faith in Jesus, yeah. and they're raising kids. I have friends who were like, I have to break up tomorrow. And that's actually, for some of them, been, like, a massive source of trauma. Mm. Like, and it's hard for them to just break up. And sometimes I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. Some people say, I'm going to be celibate straight away. And I'm like, yeah, be careful. Yes. Yeah. But journey to it with Jesus out of grace. Don't just run into it because just really be careful why you're doing that, yeah. you know, and where, you know, you may need deeper transformation. I think there's like the default of singleness, but there's a kind of threshold that people need to get to of Christian maturity before those kinds of decisions can be made in safe ways. So I'm always looking pastorally more at where's the person at, not just the kind of tick the box outcome. Um, And I think honesty and authenticity is something we need to reward more than moral performance in these things. when we're honest and we say, I've fallen, it's like, awesome, you know, yeah. rather than, oh, you're not celibate. Because no one's really celibate and no one's really married. Everybody's got adulterous and lustful thoughts. You know, we've yeah. got a fallen flesh. Like, we need to have a much broader open space where we cannot use those things to shut people down and get them off platforms, but actually reward authenticity and honesty. And I think that's a way bigger issue than yeah. just sexuality and gender. Yeah. yeah. Conscious of time. Yeah. Um, and I'm so conscious we haven't got to everything. I know, I, feel, I wish I kept but more time for I, less I think, Oliver uh, Donovan and more question time, apologies. <laughs> I, I think we should say thank you. I'm thank sorry you. I didn't get to every question that was texted in, but I hope I got to some of them. Um, can we show our appreciation for David? Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you.